Welcome to the Yogi MD podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Today, my guest is Trisha Park. Trisha enjoys a diverse and eclectic career as a violinist, educator, curator, writer, and podcaster. She is the producer and host of the podcast, Is It Recess Yet? Confessions of a Former Child Prodigy. Trisha also performs as half of the violin-fiddle duo, Trisha and Taylor, with fiddler-violinist Taylor Morris. Currently, she is an artist-in-residence and lecturer in chamber music and violin and viola performance at the University of Chicago. Trisha is undoubtedly a remarkable and accomplished woman. You can read more in the show notes. And I have the privilege of calling her my friend. It is because of our friendship that I have had the opportunity to challenge my own biases and stereotypes about the life of a child prodigy in music. In our interview, we talk about those stereotypes, what it means to conflate our identities with accomplishments, and much more. I certainly learned a ton from Trisha. I learned mostly about empathy and that we can always benefit from having meaningful conversations with our friends. I would like to thank Trisha for the music that you hear in this episode. Caesar Frank's Violin Sonata performed with pianist Dominic Celli. Before we get to the interview, here are a couple of announcements. In September, look out for the weekly storytelling series, Stories Through Art, Music, Speaking, and Writing. Finally, the Yogi MD podcast will be taking a break in the fall from October through December, a perfect time to catch up on past episodes. I promise you will love what's in store for 2021. Enjoy the episode. And I am thrilled that you are here, Trisha. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you so much, Nadine, for having me on your podcast. I'm thrilled too to be here with you. You talk about being a child prodigy. Can you tell us, first of all, what that means and what it was like growing up as a child prodigy? Being a child prodigy is a really tricky label, and it really is just a label. I am not, um, I'm not like a professional social scientist. I don't really know what the real definition of prodigious talent is. I think there's a vast array, just as there are many different kinds of intelligences that we're becoming more and more open to, you know, IQ not being the only way to be intelligent. I think the degrees of um, prodigious talent are varied. Looking back, I don't know that I necessarily ever thought of myself as that, but in this sort of definition of having been on the younger side of things, and then showing some possibly physical, uh, intellectual capacity that made me slightly outside of, like a little bit of an outlier when, you know, uh, compared with my peers. That's really the loosest way that I think of 
myself as being not a prodigy, but maybe somebody who showed some aptitude early on uh, to playing this particular instrument, which is the only instrument I play with any skill at all. (laughs) Um, uh, So then when I think of somebody like Mozart, for example, in classical music is sort of like the go-to prodigy person that you look at. He seems like a completely different level of prodigy. (laughs) Like he's somebody who seems to have born with some kind of innate gift. We know about Mozart that, for example, compared to other composers, that he was able to just kind of be like a total channel to music. So he would write things down. He would hear music in his head and sort of write it down with very little editing. And he was able to do this uh, from very, very early on. I think his earliest compositions are from age five or something like that. And in addition to that, you know, he was in a musical family. So he also had, I think, if you have aptitude and training, and so if you're in the right environment, nurture and nature, then you have the possibility of really achieving a lot of your potential in a certain way. So I think with classical music, because of the level of technical demands, I think sometimes what's considered prodigious talent is um, not always like musical talent, but sometimes it's also a kind of technical talent that you're able to execute skills quickly and you have a kind of brain that processes the kinetics of the instrument quickly. Because a violin is among one of the more awkward instruments just across the board like one of the jokes I make is I kind of learned later on in life that my parents truly did love me when you started to hear like little kids playing the violin and my brother was like had played the violin as a kid and then learned cello later on and so I had firsthand suddenly been on the other side of the door having somebody practicing all the time and being like oh my god it sounds so crappy for so long (laughs) So, like, parents really have to endure a lot of terrible sounds for many years because that's how awkward the instrument is. It's just, it's hard to even hold the violin. It's hard to make a sound on the violin. It's hard to play in tune on the violin. Um, Unlike the piano, for example, the piano is an also extremely difficult instrument. But from day one, you put your hands on the keys and you can make a tune. That's not the case with the violin. so. So who identified your talent in your house? I mean, I think it was sort of, my parents never wanted either my brother or I to be professional musicians. They never even considered it. It was more just how do we, they're wonderful parents. I'm very fortunate that they're, again, in the interest of education, wanted music and arts to be part of our our lives, to be well-rounded. So you say your parents didn't want you to, or your brother to go into professional music did they have a path they wanted you to follow? And how did you decide then to stick to music? So um, I should clarify a little bit. Like they, it's not that they didn't want us to go into professional music. They just like, we were never pushed, for example, like that was never a thing. It just wasn't a thing. It was like playing the violin was just, it's like, you know, you learn math and you learn how to draw and you learn English and you know what I mean? Like it was just part of a larger curriculum in their minds, I think of how to, um, you know, give us as much as they could. Um, My parents never pushed any particular track from very early on. There was a clear understanding that our 
position or one of our chores, if you will. Mm-hmm. We didn't grow up with chores, but there was an expectation that we would work hard and, and do well in school. I started considering playing the violin professionally pretty early on. And I think one of the things that I've thought a lot about is like, well, why did I have that thought? And I think it wasn't dissimilar to most of us who, when you're young, you're like, I want to be a fireman and I want to be a ballet dancer and I want to be whatever, an astronaut. It was sort of in that realm for me, but I did have an awareness that it was something that I did and seemed to allow me positive reinforcement and positive attention, I guess. Mm. So, yeah. So I think as a kid, you kind of respond to those cues, right? You're you're trying to figure out who you are. And if you happen to be good at something, then, um, and I put big quotes around it, <laughs> if you happen to be good at something, then that can get confused a little bit with your identity. And that happens as an adult too. Like we're all well, as you and I have discussed, that's like ego, right? Our ego needs to know what it is we are and like our place in the world. And um, it's so important to feel like you belong. You started playing professionally, though, pretty young. How did that happen? Can you elaborate upon what that experience was like? I won a competition, like a a sort of regional competition in um, Seattle, which is where we were living at the time, my family. And then through a series of events, we ended up in New York pretty quickly because it was sort of prescribed that if I was going to be serious about it, that it was important for me to have pretty intense training. There is a certain amount of early training that is very beneficial Um, I don't think that necessarily means that, um, how do I say this? I think sometimes in disciplines like classical music or classical ballet or some elite athletics, there's a real need for you to start when you're young, if you're going to reach a certain level, let's say. But I really strongly believe that some of those cultures can feel a little bit cloistered because of that. They're sort of like, oh, if you don't begin early enough, then you're kind of not, you have no access to the art form. Um, And as you know, that's just simply not true. Um, So the caveat I would say is that if you are going to try to be professional, again, with big quotes, because I think that definition of professional is changing so much, like what level of commitment you have to make in order to be considered professional is changing. Going back to how I got started or how I started playing professionally, we moved to New York. I started a very intense training um, and then pretty quickly within a couple of years um, through a series of just like anything, it's like who you know, but I was a kid, so I didn't know anybody, but you know, the teachers, the people who were in positions of authority saw that I had potential. And then I ended up playing my first professional concert when I was 13. That's amazing. And I wonder if because at the time you were training, and I don't know if I'm, I'm 
I'm hearing you correctly, but it seems like you're alluding to the fact that it classical music is competitive. Yes. Um, I think it is an extremely competitive field with, again, the, the traditional tracks are very competitive and the possibility of any kind of job security is, is very, very minimal. Um, playing in an orchestra, for example, which is in some ways, I mean, currently things are a little bit different because of the pandemic, but to date, playing in a major symphony orchestra, for example, is like a real, it's like winning the lottery. I mean, the levels that you have to train, um, not to mention the resources that go into that, just that one particular track, which is in some ways the most accessible track for people in my field, not to mention the others, which are more um, like being a soloist is really, really, really like the, maybe the top of the, of the, the job search in terms of how difficult it can be to do that. And of course, all of those things are like anything. It's, it's not a straight shot. It's, it's a very windy path with lots of considerations and lots of, you know, strokes of luck and, and opportunities that need to be open to you. And um, yeah, so I would say it is very competitive and it's a competitive field with not that many, um, viable options for like financial security and sort of job security. We've talked about how your line of work and your ex particular experience was really tied to your identity. Can you expand upon that? Can you tell us how that impacted the lens through which you looked at your life? I think what happens when you start something really young is that you you are trying to figure out who you are in lots of different ways, right? We all are. It's all like your whole life you're trying to figure out who you are. But I think when you're a kid with the limitations of a child's logic and knowledge, um, what happened to me is probably not that uncommon. Um, so I played the violin and I, I had a lot of uh, people telling me I played the violin well. and that very easily becomes, oh, I'm a violinist. I'm a good violinist. I play the violin well. I'm good at the violin. I am good. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. So it's like, it gets all conflated. Um, so if I don't play well, if I don't win the competition, mm. if I don't win the job, if I get a bad review, if I, you know, all of these things um, very easily become not, Oh, oh! I had a bad day, but I am bad. If that makes sense. Yes, that totally makes sense. Yeah, and I think we all have that experience. I just think that that experience can be more intense if you do something from when you're basically what I call like pre-consciousness, like when you're still a kid and you don't have the like. I never feel like I really made a choice. If that makes sense, like I don't think I chose to like be a violinist it just kind of happened and so I think that's why I'm really fascinated by people like you and people who like 
I think you and I have discussed this as well. Like, I think going to medical school can be a sort of similar experience. It's so rigorous. It's such a track. And, um, you know, it feels like there's no way off of the track possibly once you're in it because of sunken costs and because there's so much going into it. And so what does it take to like still choose yourself if you're not happy on that track or to have it be part of a larger picture of who you are? Um, I think those things for me have been challenges and that's partly where the blog and the podcast came from. When did you have that epiphany? Were there any key events, key moments that you can think of if you question this idea of Trisha, professional violinist versus is there more? I think for me, it started to happen when I was in my early 20s. And it was a very, very long, slow, still continuing process of um, trying to see my trying to see myself as as something independent of this thing that I happened to do. And it started in my twenties because that was right around the time when I was moving from just sheer arithmetic, like I wasn't a child star big quotes around star, but, you know, I wasn't a child performer anymore. I was moving into adulthood. And along with that came a lot of really difficult transitional issues um, on every level, personally, professionally, um, socially even. And so I think it was then that it started to dawn on me a little bit that I wanted something more. But it, it's it's such a it's like been a really slow process for me. Um, I am very risk averse, and I don't pivot or change very quickly, which is one of the things that I wish was different about me. I I work on it, but it's a uh, I'm not a particularly impulsive person, so it's just been a very very slow process of. I guess a kind way of saying it is like evolving. The training that you've been describing was very rigorous. I don't know if there was necessarily any time to think or any time to question because you had so much work to do and you had this goal in mind. And so if you're working towards a goal, is it or was it really possible to question getting off of the track? And then is it fair to say that well, it was my personality, or is it a combination of the two? Yeah, it's a good question, complex question, and one I think a lot about. A little bit chicken and egg, I think probably both. I think that I had a personality that lent itself to that for whatever reason, because I don't know that many people who would have put up with a lot of it, to be honest. Um, and I think that's a plus and a minus. I see it in myself even now that there's a kind of doggedness, like a, I don't always know when it's time to let go. 
Um, and then to your other question, yeah, I think it's a fair assessment that it was also not only the demands of um, what uh, it took were so all-consuming, but also, um, you know, I was still a child, and even a teenager has limited capacity for understanding. I mean, I feel like as an adult, I have limited understanding of the world. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you don't have as many tools and certainly not as much experience with which to have the kind of self-inquiry necessary, I think, to be like, oh, I don't know if this is working for me. I would say that I did have those thoughts even really early on. But I didn't really know what to do with those thoughts, didn't know how to express those thoughts, didn't know. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's probably pretty common for most children. You have a limited, you have, you're operating on kids logic, right? So you're making the best of it and you're assessing the world and you're trying to figure out how do I fit into all of this, which is, of course, what we all do, but. So is it fair to say that you didn't feel when you were having this awakening, if I may call it so, in your 20s, early 20s, did you feel like you were missing balance? Yes, I do. And looking back, I know that there were so many moments where I really wanted to try to do something else like I didn't go to university I went to a conservatory so even my higher education has been very um specific you know um yeah you went to Juilliard yeah I did I was fortunate that's impressive (laughs) yeah it is and there were things I gained from that experience and then there are other things like anything like you know, I have friends who are professionals, exceptional musicians who went a slightly different path than me. And there are pros and cons to both. You know, you can't have everything, unfortunately. Uh, and, um, you know, but so, you know, sometimes I thought about, well, what would a liberal arts education experience have given me earlier on in terms of, you know, at its best, a liberal arts education or any sort of broad undergrad education gives you opportunity to try different things. I mean, that's sort of the ideal um, of what that experience can be for people. And I feel like I didn't have that. And so it was like a very slow process to trying different things, I think. What, ha- what has to happen? From the point of view of a pre-med, I didn't, and it's a regret, I didn't have the wherewithal to enjoy other subject matter. It felt like, well, I have to do all of this in order to get to this goal. Um, the first thought that I have while you were talking was that I think the educational models that we operate under um, sort of broadly, certainly in this country, and I think I think to some extent in most developed countries, puts a real focus on professionalizing students 
this belief that we need to professionalize very early on, that we need to sort of set ourselves on a track goes hand in hand with like a capitalist system, right? And um, I think that a lot of us operate under that system, which is why the short answer is I think it is difficult to find balance as long as those kinds of goals of professionalism are prioritized, I think, for us. Um, if there was more trust in some of the things that I think are are having, there are more conversations around now, like what does it really mean to be truly um, well in your body and in your mind and in your spirit? Is IQ the only way that we gauge intelligence in people? What are What role does play have in creativity in being able to uh, problem solve and think critically. Um, I think that there has always been this approach to the educational system of being very like tunnel vision. But I mean, you're seeing too at the more like innovative companies, I guess you would say that they, they do want to prioritize like people's work weeks being shorter and um room for naps and you know um, hobbies and getting outside and running around or going for a walk like all these things are, I think are slowly becoming infused into the larger culture um, as we become more aware of how our ways of thinking about what it means to be a professional is changing if that makes sense. And I also think that we are not encouraged to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And being wrong is part of being a curious person and part of real learning, in addition to everything that you so eloquently just said. In order to get to that goal, it has to be about perfection and you have to have the right answer all of the time because, to your point earlier, you're rewarded for the A and being the perfect student and having the perfect attendance and all that. But we're not really rewarded for gosh, sitting in a small group or raising your hand in a classroom and asking for more clarification. And so I think that makes it a little bit more difficult or can make it a little bit more difficult to be more willing to step outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. And you and I met, uh, as you mentioned in the podcast fellowship and you're a longtime Seth Godin follower, but you know, he talks a lot about the problems with um, the educational system and a lot of his, the things that I've read and heard him talk about um, feel like it's resonant for this conversation because he talks a lot about how that model is really about the factory worker, right? It's really about the industrial revolution and how mm-hmm. that changed education. Um, and he's very much a proponent for not following that model, right? Because of exactly what you said. It's like, it's, uh, it's teaching to the test and it's like, you know, making sure that everybody knows that the square peg goes in the square hole and there's no if, ands or buts about it. But, you know, does that promote creative thought? Does that promote innovation? Does that promote? No, because as you know, and I, I mean, I'm deeply uncomfortable with it, but we all know that in order to grow, you have to fail. You have yes. to make mistakes. Um, but if the system does not support that, then yes, people are not going to be very healthy, first of all. Mm-hmm. And number two, they're not going to take risks. And I think it makes it more difficult or easier to be more polarized. Mm-hmm. Because if you're used to this system of 
I'm right and I don't consider other viewpoints, then it we get what we have right now, where it's everything is black and white, which makes absolutely no sense. And then you have these magical moments or you meet these magical people. One of my, actually, I can think of a couple. My youngest daughter has always been a color outside the box person. And I always encouraged it. And I can recall times, a couple of times in, in particular, where a high school teacher and a, a college professor said, she appears very quiet. She'll sit back. But then she'll just say this thing that kind of ties things together or shifts the viewpoint. And those particular teachers I'm thinking of said, I like that because I can always count on her to give us a different perspective, to open up a different avenue of thinking or to coalesce ideas in a way that someone else might not have seen. So that quiet, that reservation, that seemed like it might look like disinterest. It might, it doesn't look like the stereotypical A student who's raising her hand every single moment, but it's someone who needs time to process and has a different way of putting the information together. And I just mm -hmm. wish that we would award that back to your original point about different types of intelligence. It's not always the star student. And like, let's call a spade a spade. We know that <laughs> we know that it's not always the, the smartest person is not always the loudest person in the room. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are in a culture that like rewards loudness, but yeah, I mean, I think of that book by Susan Cain, Quiet, that came out like a while ago now, but where she did a whole study on introverts and like, what is it, you know, what does it mean to be a quiet person in a culture that doesn't um, recognize the value of that? And, um, but to your point, I think that, yeah, you know, it's amazing how much space and time and introspection is really needed to be able to solve problems um, and to think of different solutions. When I attend concerts of various types, whether it's a pop music festival or it's a classical um, music, it's so easy to look at everyone and make judgments or use stereotypes. Have you had experience around that idea of being stereotyped in your life? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know, you know, It'd be, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, because, you know, we're both broadly people of color, you know, people like non-white people have this experience. And I think broadly what I'll say is a, a, something that I've been thinking a lot about, something I've always felt, but I think that it's a positive that more and more of the culture is allowing for us to 
have language with which to talk about these issues. But for the majority of my life, I would say that I have not really known how to articulate the things that I have experienced or felt because I would say broadly that the things I have experienced and felt have not necessarily been, I would say that they have fallen more in the category of sort of microaggressions and implicit bias and stereotyping, as you say. Um, and so I can't speak to a s- certain kinds of experiences of othering people, but that those have been my experiences. And I would just say then the other part of it is um, being in an Asian body means that um, I, many of us have the experience of being the perpetual foreigner that no amount of assimilation, no amount of how perfectly I speak English, no amount of how exceptional I may be within a system, a second I walk into a room, people aren't necessarily doing it uh, maliciously. Like we all do that, right? We all assess people. We we see people and we that's just how our brains work. We look for patterns. This is how we understand the world. So it's not malicious, but I would say just in brief to your question, like very like succinctly that yes. And part of, and that is part of being in an Asian body in a culture that um, prioritizes whiteness. So as long as there's a, there's a professor at Columbia university called Dr. Um, Wing Su, uh, Dr. Daryl Wing Su. And he's done a lot of really important work on microaggressions. And I, read some of his things and I I watched a video of his from some years back and he said something that never like really left me because it was so obvious but it was very helpful in terms of my conceptualizing some of my experiences and also understanding the feelings I've had of being feeling alienated and not really belonging Mm -hmm. Um, and what he said was white people are not the problem white supremacy is the problem because it's the idea of elevating one group of people over others, that that's the problem. And so then when you prioritize one over the other, that's where the issue is. It's not inherently that one group is bad or one group is good. It's just the system that has set up this hierarchy. Oh, my goodness. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And as of late, I've been really thinking about stereotyping and the harms of stereotyping in a way that's less blame oriented on a specific group and more problematic when it is internalized. So catching myself, shifting my body language, and these are really subtle things, shifting my body language or my speech or the way I walk into a room depending on who's there. Have you read Claudia Rankine's Citizen? No. You might, yeah. She is an extraordinary, I mean, she's a writer, but she's an artist. And um, some years back she published this book, or a book of hers was published called Citizen. And it made quite quite a ruckus, as Seth would say. Mm -hmm. Um, But she talks a lot about this, about the sort of levels of code switching that we engage in, Mm -hmm. microaggressions. And she, she, it's very, it's quite um, 
basically what she did was she asked a, a lot of her friends who are black, she's black, um, to share with her their experiences of microaggressions. And um, it was th through that that she created this collection of essays. Um, and she talks about that too, about how, I think to your point, stereotyping is a way, on the one hand, it's a way that we all, we all do some kind of, processing of information right sure. we want to understand things but i think that um and and i will also say that we all switch our personas a little bit depending on who we're with right we're different with our families and we're different with our friends and we're different with our work colleagues and we're different with you know at the grocery store you know what i mean it's like Agreed, but I think it's not, there's not a level of judgment when you're doing that. I can be, right. I'm going, of course, I'm going to be a certain way with my family. I'm more comfortable with my family. I'm going to be a certain way in the workplace, but it's not because, like the code switching you mentioned, it's not because I inherently think it's bad exactly. to be this way. Right. And when I said that, it was more for me to just say, that experience of changeability is one that it can be separate from the experiences of gender and race. Like I think we all just humans do that is mm -hmm. what I meant. But mm -hmm. I completely agree with your point, which is it becomes an issue when we're doing that because we're afraid of retribution or we're afraid of being ousted from the group or we're afraid of, you know, when we're concealing something mm -hmm. um, because we're trying to fit in. Yeah, agreed. I know this seems like I'm veering off of the path, but <laughs> okay. a little bit because we can't go down this rabbit hole uh, more. It's a it's a deep rabbit hole. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> but music for you is mm -hmm. music a life in music forever? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um. It's really interesting. I've thought about this in the past when it comes to sort of thinking about if I ever have a child of my own, that, you know, would that child inherit some musical something from me? And how much of that is inherent or how much of that is just, um, like, again, the nature-nurture thing? How much of it is environmental? To answer your question, why I prefaced it that way is to say, like, I feel like there was a time before I was a violinist, and now I am a violinist, and I don't always feel, if I'm really honest, I don't always feel sure of my relationship with music and playing the violin. Um, it feels pretty changeable it moves around a lot but the reason I bring up the whole 
nature nurture thing is like I feel like it's part of me whether I like it or not anymore you know it's just it's there even if I walked away today and never ever played again um, knock on wood hopes that doesn't happen because I think that would be sad but um, it's it's all in me if that makes sense right Mm -hmm. it's like it's just it's uh, whatever software update needed to happen in order for me to be a violinist <laughs> happened. So I can't like undo the update or whatever. The operating system is there. <laughs> Wonderful. Is there anything else we left out of our conversation? No, other than I think I'm a big fan and I think you're great. And um, I'm so pleased to be here. And thank you for having me. Oh, it was indeed my pleasure, and I feel the exact same way. (laughs) So my final question, I ask every guest, is what your personal definition of what it means to be healthy is? Mm. Oh, I feel like, I feel sort of like guilty because I don't know that I'm totally healthy. But that's not what the question was. You were asking me, what does it mean to be healthy? Okay. What does it mean to, to you to be healthy? And let me let me expand that a little bit. That this is the main reason I do the podcast because mm-hmm. we tend to think of health in a very black and white box again, where right. it's especially as women, you have to be a certain weight, a certain dress size, you have to eat a very specific diet and very little of it in order to be considered a healthy person. And I'll lend some perspective. At my, and I think we talked about this, at my quote unquote external healthiest, where I was exercising a ton and I was decreasing my caloric intake, I was thin, I was the thinnest I've ever been, but I was an internal mess because my mental and emotional health was out of whack. So I have learned over the years that health is personal. It is unique. It evolves for everyone. So what I consider to be healthy for Nadine should not be Trisha's definition of healthy. We may have some things in common, but it it really should not be the same thing. So that's what I mean by my question. I want to share like a little anecdote that's kind of similar. Um, So I too have had a period of time where uh, I would say about how many years ago now? Oh my gosh, maybe like six or seven years ago now, I was going through a difficult time um, with sort of like my mental and emotional health. And I now know for me that some of the triggers or early indicators that I am off balance often manifest in the ways I treat my body. So Mm. I tend to uh, not be able to sleep. I tend to stop eating. I tend to overexercise. And all of those things are things that have to do with um, my need for control. Um, And then when things are starting to feel out of control, I start to correct in those ways. Now, on the surface, none of those things are bad things. You know, uh, the sleep thing is an issue, but Mm -hmm. exercise and maybe not eating a ton is what women are told to do, right? We're told that we should be really skinny. 
And so when I look back at pictures from those years, knowing how, um, like you and your story, knowing how um, sad and uh, really hurting I was in that moment, and I look at those photos, I am, I mean, I'm I'm extremely thin. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I'm sort of radiant in these pictures because, you know, I I was getting the endorphins that I so clearly like I was I was struggling with some mental health issues, um, you know, depression and anxiety, and so exercising in and of itself to an extreme was give, giving my body endorphins. So like my skin was great and my hair was fantastic and like I was super thin and like I look at photos of myself and. And it hurts my heart because I know what was actually going on then. But, and it's interesting when I look at, when I took those photos then and when I looked at them then, I remember thinking how much I hated myself. Like how mm. I looked at those photos and all I saw were all of my flaws. Um, and then some years later to look back and then to see how how lovely I was, you know. Mm-hmm. So the the point of it is, um, I agree with you. I think that it's uh, it's not it's one I struggle with though, because I think that there is some part of me, kind of like the general perfectionism that I have in many areas of my life. There is a knee jerk reaction, which is no for me. Uh, if I hit all these points. Right. If I'm if I'm the right dress size, if I'm eating correctly, um, if I'm being super productive, if I uh, have like an awesome partner, if I have like a great job, you know, like it just goes on and on. Like mm-hmm. those are the markers of success, and that's what I want, and that's mm-hmm. where my comfort zone is. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's because it's so clear. Then you know, like your dress size is a number, the scale is a number. Um, you know, your job salary is a number, Um, how many hours, you know, you worked out is a number, like, it's easy, that's easy. But that is not really what it takes, I think, to be really healthy. But I just want to like fully, like full transparency, like it's something I struggle with, like it's, I'd much rather just slot in the numbers, because then I don't have to confront myself, you know. Hmm. Well said. <laughs> and wow, what a what a light conversation we've had. I know. Sorry, it got kind of dark there. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I'll I'll go there. Thank you very, very much for being oh, here. Thank you. And now it's time for the mindful minute. Find a quiet and comfortable place. Pause. Savor more music from Caesar Frank's violin sonata, performed by Trisha and pianist Dominic Celli.
And now, here's testimony from a wise woman. Connect with me at YogiMD to learn more. Yoga has had such a profound impact on my life. It's almost hard to describe. I would say in every conceivable way. I've connected to my mind and through my mind, my body. It's truly something that I can't live without at this point. I've had yoga before Nadine, but through Nadine, I've decided that it's um, something I need to do for a lifetime, for my lifetime. To learn more and to practice with me, find me at yogimd.net. I appreciate you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for subscribing. See you next time.